Father, we, we love you. Father, we, we can't even begin to grasp the depth of your love for us. But we're here this morning, we say we love you. Thank you. Thank you for saving each one of us. Thank you. We love you, Lord. We open our hearts to you this morning. I ask, Lord, that for each one of us here that you would meet with us where we are at, but with your love, your truth, that we cannot help but be transformed in your love this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Please do stay in that heart of worship as we, as we hear um, Peter Gaimon's going to come and give the reading and as Paddy ministers to us as well to just allow the words to not only wash over us but to go deep into to our hearts. Allow God what he wants to do in our lives this morning. Um, today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 4 verses 23 to 30. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up. For three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon there were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian when they heard this all in the synagogue were filled with rage they got up drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are we doing? So much space. So much like room for activities. If you get the reference, that's a little extra one for you. <clears throat> Let me pray. Before we begin, Holy Spirit, be with us now. Be with us now. Be at work amongst us. Be at work in the soils of our lives as the seed of your word can take root in good, healthy soil. Lord, as I speak generally, would you be guiding my words, guiding our thoughts? And would you be speaking specifically to our hearts this morning? Amen. Amen. Well, I have to admit, I, uh, I got in a bit of trouble last week. I almost expect there to be like gasps. I'll try it again. I have to admit, I got in a bit of trouble last week. It's becoming a bit of a panto now. I love it. 
So, has anyone else given up something for Lent? Good show of hands. Great. We've got a few pious people amongst us. Gold stars. Anyone given up sugar for Lent? Yeah, a few brave souls, like Barbara and Belinda and myself. So my wife and I have given up sugar for Lent. I've even extended it to like all sweet things. Um, so any midweek church events with pastries is just leading me into temptation. But as a result of that, my wife kind of, Sarah, she makes Sunday the feast day. Some people have their like opinions whether like you should be able to indulge on a Sunday or not. We do. And so as a result of that, on a Sunday, she, a few days out, Sarah will plan what this sweet treat is going to be for us. So last week, she decided, probably at about Thursday, right, on Sunday, we're going to have my white chocolate Oreo cheesecake. <clears throat> That's a very good response as well. I feel like a few people start salivating at the mouth, like my dog as well. <clears throat> The only issue was, by, by Saturday evening, Sarah had realized, like, oh, I haven't actually got the ingredients for white chocolate Oreo cheesecake. So Sunday morning, we have, like, an early morning prayer meeting, and then there's about half an hour to spare. And so she's like, can you quickly run to the co-op and grab the ingredients? Like, we need white chocolate, we need Oreos, and we need the cheese that makes the cheesecake. So I go quickly, like, run around to the co-op, grab all the things, think that I've done a great job, I come back, deliver the ingredients, and then come back to, to church. And then at about quarter past nine, I get this text. Paddy, where's the white chocolate? Where is, this is how I read it. Do you guys do this? It's just like a text, where is the white chocolate? It's like, where is the white chocolate? And my response is like, oh, crap. Oh, rubbish. Oh. James says worse things than that. <laughs> he says that eight, anyway. We won't get into that debate. This will come up at our service meetings this week. Renegade curate goes off track. Jacob will cut it from the, uh, the YouTube. I'm like, oh, rubbish. I've forgotten the white chocolate. But I kind of, I, so I reply, I've been like, well, why don't we just have Oreo cheesecake? Anyone had Oreo cheesecake still? But the issue is, the seed has been planted for white chocolate Oreo cheesecake. Sarah has decided. She has made a plan. She has set the blueprint. She has the recipe for white chocolate Oreo cheesecake. And Sarah, it's not because my wife is like stubborn, set in her ways. It's that she has set her heart towards white chocolate Oreo cheesecake. And Oreo cheesecake alone will not do. And if you think that I'm not just like six days removed from sugar and I'm like having withdrawal symptoms, I hope some of you have realized the metaphor that I'm trying to paint. It's this, that God, just like my wife who desires nothing short of Oreo, white chocolate Oreo cheesecake, God doesn't want just to like settle with something less than his plan. God doesn't want to settle for something less than his plan, which was all of us which was a, a full union with, with us, not just part of us, but all of us. And I think we can also flip the, the script as well and say, you know what, actually, our, our heart's desire, our dream shouldn't just be some of Jesus. It shouldn't just be a little bit of him where it kind of works and fits in with our life and doesn't offend us too much, but our dream should be all of him. 
I suggest that when you've tasted the goodness of white chocolate Oreo cheesecake, you'll never go back to just Oreo cheesecake. <laughs> There's some theologically minded individuals in the room who are just like, this is heresy. There's some culinary minded people who are also thinking this is heresy. But <clears throat> it's this, it's that, that we are being invited higher. We're being invited to more than just good. We're being invited to, to Jesus and all of Jesus. There's a few um, people in the church that will, that will wear these jumpers from a brand. It's like this Christian charity brand group of students somewhere that just says, there is something more. Sometimes just like a little phrase like that will minister to you in and of itself. But it's this, that there is something more. There's something more than just Oreo cheesecake. It's called white chocolate Oreo <laughs> Like beating that drum to death already. There is something more. There is something more to, to look towards. There is something more to, to chase after and devote our lives to. I've borrowed this phrasing as, um, you can put it as a title, but hopefully it kind of sums up the next 20 minutes in like one and a half seconds. But it's this, that that God comes where he is wanted. And I hope that this isn't limited to merely like an individual message about you and you and of yourself, but rather it applies to us together. That actually, what if together we become a community who, who wants God and will invite him in because God comes where he is wanted? Does that make sense? We can debate about the cheesecake, but hopefully... Let's get back to the Bible. That being said, anyone watch The Chosen? This great, like, not quite TV show, but it's like, great portrayal. Um, has anyone seen, like, this scene that we, this scene, this, like, passage of scripture that we read today and that was read a couple weeks ago? Have you seen the scene where this is portrayed? Yeah, it's in, like, the latest. They do a great job portraying this. I can't help but when I read this, I realize that, that Jesus' homecoming is a bit of a roller coaster. It's a bit of a roller coaster. He kind of, it's like local boy come good. It's the local boy, like, didn't think he'd amass too much and then becomes a rabbi. But even in verse 15, it talks about everyone praised him. Verse 22, after he's got up and, like, spoke in the temple, it says, all spoke well of him. And then just six verses later it says, and they were filled with rage and they led him up onto a brow of a hill so they might hurl him off the cliff. So how quickly does it, does it change? Jesus' pleasing message to, to the Nazarenes soon becomes highly offensive to them. I suggest it because it, it disrupts their idea of, of what was supposed to happen. It disrupts their idea of, of what the Messiah was to be, who he was to be, what he was to be like. Again, in The Chosen, there's like this scene that definitely isn't in the Bible where Jesus is playing some like basic game of catch, but they're having a great time about it, and Jesus is rubbish at it. And it kind of sets the tone for us. It's like, how can this guy be the Messiah? It disrupts our idea of what to happen, what was to happen what the Messiah was to be. 
But I think more so, although he kind of gets up and he, he reads this prophecy from Isaiah and it says, all spoke well of him. I think soon in, the, in the, the moments to come, the penny starts to drop. And they realize that as he, he prophesied this message from, from Isaiah, they realize that what he's saying is, you are the poor. He's saying, you are the imprisoned. You are the, the blind who need your eyes opened. You are the ones who are oppressed and needs freedom. And it's here that they become offended. Offended personally. Not that he's sinned against God, but actually now he's just offended me personally. They might reply, you know what, like, but we are, but we are children of Abraham. We're children of the promise. And he still says, you are poor. You're imprisoned. You're blind. I suggest this, that, that conviction always is going to offend when pride remains. When our pride remains, conviction offends. That's both our, the conviction from God. Maybe it's the conviction from our peers as well. How often do we hold on to offense and actually at the root of it is just our own pride? The Bible is a humbling read, partly because it's full of conviction. I don't think it is this like hallmark love letter that often we make it out to be, often we want it to be, because it holds these tensions together. This love letter, it's, it's not love as we would hope it to be, but rather it's true love. It's love that, that sets boundaries and it sets responsibilities. It sets obligations upon us. It's not as we want it to be, but it is as it is, and it's true love. The Bible leads us into a love that disciplines us, but ultimately it leads us into true life. Or as James would say, it leads us into the good stuff. There are these tensions that it holds together. Like in one breath, it, it speaks of our identity. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. They would, it's through Moses that he says, you know what? God has chosen you, not because of anything you've done or because of who you are. Like you are the, the least and weakest. But it's because he has set his heart towards you and he loves you. And he speaks into their identity and says, you are to be my, my royal priesthood. So it speaks of our identity, but then it also speaks of, and describes our nature. How often does God, when he's conversing with Moses, he says, like, gosh, like, how long am I to put up with this stiff-necked people? Yeah, we have our identity, but it also speaks of our nature. And they're in, often in direct contradiction. Israel, what a stiff-necked people. Essentially saying, you're like a cow whose neck is so stiff that this little spiky thing, like, that farmers would use to like maneuver them and steer them is having no effect on them. Maybe it hits real home when we consider the motto for, for Sussex. James Ladderon last week was talking a lot about kind of like the spiritual atmospheres that are rife in a place. The spiritual atmosphere that has been here in Sussex. I don't mean this to condemn, but to, merely to describe this Sussex motto is like, we won't be druv. And granted, because I've heard like people talk about this motto, 
both from like a cultural standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. I've also just seen it. it speaks of this stubborn spiritual attitude, culture that is a rife. We won't be forced, we won't be told anything to do. But it directly comes and like butts up against the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the king. He is the one who establishes a new kingdom. And when Jesus is the king, that means there is a, there is a new way to be human because he brings about a new world order. It's in Jesus as king that he brings about a new way to exist, a new way to interact, a new way to, to structure our lives and our society. And ultimately, it's a new way to see. Just like Paul, where like scales would fall off our eyes, we recognize Jesus as the king. Because the call is always consistent. The call is to, to humble ourselves at Jesus. The call is to, to let him come in. The call is to recognize Jesus for who he is and humble ourselves as a result of that. Ahead of, ahead of last weekend, we, we got together early on Saturday morning. I remember praying and I just had this sense that, again, highly uncomfortable, that God was tearing down good things. He was tearing down good things. So, okay, God, what is it? He's like tearing down our, our habits, our patterns, our routines, our priorities. He's tearing down good things so he can establish new things. Maybe the new things that are unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and are different. He's establishing new things of God that are for now. And as I would say, you know what? Sing unto the Lord a new song. I was recently at a gathering of, of church leaders and someone was, kind of the, the speaker was sharing. He shared a similar sentiment. He said, you know what? God must, must dismantle things, particularly dismantle things in the church so he can remantle the church. We must consider that. And he left us with this quite poignant question. He said, you know what? Will you, like, are you prepared? Will you lay down all that you have built up? Will you lay it down so we can then receive what, what God has promised to build? Will you lay down all that you have built up so you can receive what God has promised to build? I think Jesus, he... He came back to Nazareth and he offended the Nazarenes. Mainly because he implicitly pronounced himself as the Messiah. And their response was, physician, heal yourself. They demanded miracles in front of them to prove it. Like, do, do what you've done elsewhere here. If you are who you say you are. A similar sentiment would be used when he was being flogged and beaten and, and ultimately crucified. Like, if you are the son of God, like, heal yourself, sort yourself out. They're saying, like, you know what, I'll believe it. I'll follow you as this Messiah when I see it. But the call is always inversed. It is, is follow me and then you'll see it. So they don't receive the response they desire and instead... Jesus, he spotlights the faith of, of Gentiles, those outside of the, the chosen people of God. He spotlights their faith. In a time of famine in which everyone was afflicted by it, God didn't minister to, to the chosen people, 
but rather actually people that could be classified as enemies. Because this is what happens when this is what the kingdom looks like as it breaks out, as it comes to those who desire it. God comes where he is wanted. And it reminds us that it's not about who you are, but it's about how we respond to the word. Because when we respond in faith, through obedience, that's where God can work. But if our response is, is cynicism and unbelief, all we're doing is just shutting the door on God. We'll find ourselves, and then we start quoting like Psalm 42 and lament, just like, where is God? And hopefully there's this little voice of conviction that's like, you can hear him through the door saying like, I'm out here because you shut the door on me. To God, he, he re- God, Jesus, he, he references these accounts. So it's in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah, with Elijah and then 2 Kings chapter 5 with, with Naaman and the slave girl and the prophet Elisha. When he's talking about this, this widow, it represents the disadvantage. It represents everyone that he spoke of within this prophecy in Isaiah. Because she was poor. She was oppressed. She was the hungry. Or he references Naaman, the, the Syrian soldier. He was afflicted by leprosy or a skin disease. Ultimately something that was beyond the reaches of our our medical prowess. In the Bible, if you had leprosy, it wasn't like a medical issue for the doctor. You were sent to the priest because it was beyond all human efforts. And again, it constantly reminds us that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all we can muster up in our own strength. Because in Jesus, we have, we have the bread of life. Because when we are hungry, he is the one that sustains us. He is the one that provides for us, both spiritually and physically. In Jesus, we have life where there once was death. If you follow that account of the widow, it's actually her, her son that ends up dying. And it's through Elijah that God raises him from the dead. In Jesus, we have the bread of life. We have the healer. We have life where there once was death. We have hope where there once was despair but still we're offended because God doesn't show up in the way we expect him to. When you read the account of Naaman in 2 Kings 5, you, you see how he's like f- continually frustrated. He turns up at the door of Elisha, and he's not met with honor and respect, but rather Elisha just sends his servant along to say hello. And he's like outraged at this. And then 2 Kings 5, I think it's from like verse 11, it starts talking about how he's offended because when Elisha finally does come and speak to him, he doesn't like wave his hands around in a big show and like harness the power of God Almighty. He just says, go and wash in the river. And he's offended because it doesn't happen as he expected to because God doesn't come as we expect him to. But God comes as he is. And God comes when he is wanted. Kind of as we finish, in this passage, I think the the thing that struck me the most about it was verse 30. 
said, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. I think for years I was always just like, how did Jesus slip through? Was this like one of those sci-fi computer games I played as a child where he just went invisible? And I realized, gosh, like what a tragedy that Jesus, the Messiah, God coming down to earth as a human, he would just pass through their midst and he went on his way. These Nazarenes, these people, they were left in their stubbornness and their unbelief because they couldn't humble themselves. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of Abraham, if you get my drift. And I read it and it, and it grieves me because I'm just like, gosh, God, like, I don't want Jesus to ever just pass through our midst and go on our way. So we can keep meeting and we can keep singing these songs. But if God's not here, like nothing's going to change. Nothing's actually going to happen. So towards the end in, in Revelation, God, through the, the vision of John, he's speaking to these different churches and he speaks to the church in Laodicea in chapter 3. The one who he says, like, you, you're neither hot nor you're cold. And he says, my paraphrase would be, he speaks to them and says, like, you are not what you should be because you don't have what you should have. I know it's, it, gets, it makes us squirm when we use the word should. You're not what you should be because you don't have what you should have. Or maybe like you, you aren't what you can be because you don't have what you can have. I would suggest this is like another way of understanding it. And in the midst of it, he says, like, I'm, I'm about to spit you out. Someone reminded me recently, I'm, you could render it, I'm about to vomit you out. That's what Jesus says about his church. Because they aren't what they should be. They aren't what they could be. They could be his bride because they could have him. But they don't. They exclude him and they shut the door to him. But I realize the great hope in this is, is that little word that says, I am about to. I'm about to. It's not too late. That's why the call is always kind of like, if my people would humble themselves and, and turn from their ways, if you would repent, if you would realize your situation, if you would have, a, have an honest evaluation of yourself as a community and realize that I'm at the door and not amongst you, that's when you can, can come from me and buy, not with money, you can buy gold and white robes. It describes a salve for your eyes that you can see properly. This is what you can have in Jesus, is what he's saying. It always comes back to this where we have repentance. We're turning from our own ways and actually following Jesus. That's the doorway through which God walks. In our act of repentance, both like personally and corporately, that is answering the door to Jesus who has been excluded. Two Corinthians seven, it talks about this godly sorrow. And in the godly sorrow, it leads us to repentance and repentance leads us to salvation. That salvation, really. healing, wholeness, fullness, 
complete satisfaction, complete joy. God comes where he is wanted. And when he is wanted, God comes in. Without trying to be more articulate, when God comes in, good stuff happens. When God's stuff in, the kingdom breaks out. Like we've experienced that. We've like peered through and seen God's glory. We've tasted and seen that he is good. We can distinguish the difference between white chocolate Oreo cheesecake and just like lemon cheesecake. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a difference. God comes where he is wanted. Kind of as we stand, I think we're going to worship some more in a minute. Like in a moment. Why don't we stand? I want to read this psalm over us. A friend of mine texted me quite unexpectedly recently. He's a guy I grew up with. Um, I grew up not walking with the Lord, so like a lot of people I grew up with are still not walking with the Lord. And um, they obviously like see me, they're like, Jeepers, man, like, I know who Paddy was before he was a vicar. But he texted me out of the blue and he just said, like, how do you turn and and follow God? Like, how did you do that? So I tried to, like, summarize amidst screaming babies and poo and nappies, like, I just said, someone like explained to me the gospel, they explained why Jesus died, and it made like a bit of sense. He then invited me to church, where I experienced tangibly the presence of God, the power of God, not merely wise words, but God's power. And thirdly, I tried it. I just walked according to his ways and not according to mine, and I realized that's where I found salvation. I realized all my ways were futile. His ways were good. When we started this journey through Luke in November, James laid out these five kind of goals. I don't know. I made a note of them anyway. It's like discover what it would be like for, for Jesus-shaped Christianity, for the church to be shaped by Jesus. But the last one he said was this, was discover how to stand amidst the lurking shadow of evil and opposition. And it's this, it's, it's turning from our own ways and and following in him. That's Jesus' simple command. When he, when he called his disciples, he just said, come, follow me. So Psalm 119, there's a little passage in it from verse 33. He says, teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Sometimes it would say, give me life in your ways. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Preserve my life. God, you come where you are wanted. So the cry of our heart, the cry of your people together is, God, you are wanted here. 
It's so often where our, where our hearts are willing, yet our flesh is just incapable and weak. By your strength, by your spirit, help us to turn our eyes from worthless things. Give us life according to your ways, God. God, we continually open the door and say, come back in. We want to be all that you destined us to be, all you created us to be. So come take your rightful place as king, as the bridegroom, as Lord, as our Savior and Messiah. In so many ways, it wasn't what we expected to be, but it was so much better. So God, have your way amongst us. Amen. Thank you, Paddy. That was amazing. That was uh, 